Shalom, James. Shalom, Rabbi, and I would say Manishma. Well, I, I do want to say Manishma. I do want to say, how are you? Because it, it, it is a remarkable uh, thing to see you because uh, it's, it's like a miracle. Uh, you've, had, you've had iron and metal raining down from the skies <laughs> all week, and there you sit, smiling and happy in your home, and, and uh, like many of the people in Eretz Israel, what in the world uh, is, is going on? I, I know that people are going to hear this, you know, uh, after the fact, but as of today, uh, share with us what it's been like for all of you there. In, in yeah, Eretz I would Israel. like to do that. I appreciate the opportunity because I think that I'm sure that that the um, people who care about the land of Israel and about what's been going on here are hard-pressed to find the truth because it is so suppressed in the major media, what's been really going on. Everything is so colored, and uh, it's it's been so tumultuous. Mm-hmm. I just want to apologize before we begin. I just came a few minutes ago from the eye doctor where I had a routine examination, but I had these drops in my eyes, so my pupils might be might be very large. I just don't want our viewers to think that I'm on something, you know, or that, that I'm somehow, you know, I'm somehow, uh, I've gone mad. You know, that's the explanation. Honest, honest. Yeah. I had drops in my eyes. That's what it's all about. But back to the question at hand. So we had this remarkable period of five days in which we were under fire. I could almost lose track, but it was actually over 1,200 missiles, Jim, uh. in a five-day period. Just that, that alone as an opening sentence, I mean, who would, who would, what normal country would tolerate such a thing of, of its citizens being in jeopardy, of children having to sleep in bomb shelters, mm-hmm. and of uh, this, this, this utter chaos, you know, over, over 1,200 missiles? What was it all about? Mm-hmm. How did it all begin? It began really with an Islamic jihad terrorist who had been on a hunger strike. Yeah in a prison in Israel, and he passed away. Uh, he passed away from his own self-inflicted hunger strike. Right. And he was a major terrorist. So that, that's really what started this, although, although also before there already had been salvos of missiles that had been coming into Israel, and Israel reacted here and there. But basically this was a large-scale offensive that was perpetrated by this terrorist organization called Islamic Jihad, right? And... Um, the way that the media covered his death, by the way, is so remarkable. This is a person who has blood on his hands, who was responsible for many, many attacks against Israelis. So the New York Times, for example, called him a prominent Palestinian prisoner. Reuters called him a prominent political leader. Uh, BBC called him a Palestinian hunger striker. So nobody really emphasized the fact that this was a murderer who's whose goal is to destroy as many Jews as possible. So they initiated these attacks. It was um, quite a difficult period. Um, In the meantime, uh, Israel was surgically striking at the leaders of this organization with such precision. It's really, really remarkable. So they took out four or five of the commanders Mm -hmm. of this organization. And you know that... That um, again, just as t- in terms of the uh, remarkable, um, you know, uh, morality of the IDF, you know, the surgical strikes and uh, the, just the intelligence of knowing exactly where someone is sitting, on what floor, and what building, on what couch, mm-hmm. and being able to take out that person with a with a minimal of uh, of loss of civilian life, and 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 the IDF is so careful. You know, there was a yeah. there was a breathtaking clip that was shared here in Israel of a, of a. Of an, of an Air Force conversation that with, where the pilots uh, identified children. Oh, yeah, you could hear them saying, an wait, wait, there's yeah, a, ch- a yes, child. Yes, and, and they called it off, and they, and they returned because they were children. Whereas, as, as you know, the uh, other side shoots from highly dense, they, mm-hmm. they launch from highly dense uh, populated areas. Yeah. They, use, they use children as human shields. They, They've had they hundreds, fire from, hundreds of their own people killed. By what we in the in the military forces call friendly fire, but but right. you you I, I was you contrast that with with the, the care of the IDF and using these these systems with the fact that I forgot the number I I know it was in the hundreds that that uh, the their own people were killed 
by their their lack of care. I don't know if it was in the hundreds of reports that I saw were were bad enough though. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was uh, um, I think twenty five. Oh, there were no, f- no. That's not. I read there were far more than that. I wish I could. Are you talking about the missiles that were launched from Gaza that fell that fell short and fell back on their own yeah. population? It was far more than right. that. Yeah. I I know that there were three children. Uh, I know that. Um, Oh yes, I did. I did see a report. There were 110 mm-hmm. uh, as of uh, last Thursday morning, but there was a 16-year-old child and and uh, a 12-year-old child, and and even in those cases, many media reports blamed it on Israel, yeah, as right. if these children were killed by Israeli fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's the playbook, you know that that uh, we have to put up with, and and I've said it. Before and I'll never quit saying, and I, I, I saw this coming when I was in the press years ago, and that is, is that <clears throat> the press basically has no because the press because the people I met in the press that, that wanted to get into broadcast journalism, they were not interested in the facts; they were interested in being stars. And we have we have what we have in this country called a, we have an activist press, who basically say, well, I'm going to you know it's it's my <clears throat> it's you know. I have to, I have to form a narrative that I believe will, will spread the my message of hope for the world, exactly. or whatever they, you know. And, and what powers that seems to be just the old standard Jew hatred and the old standard resentment of of Israel existing. Yeah. And that's the thing that people have to understand is that we're dealing with organizations that do not recognize the right of Jews to live at at all, or the right of mm-hmm. Israel to to exist, and so. In the meantime, within these days of, of intense uh, rocket fire, like I say, over 1,200 rockets were fired at Israel, and the military, the Israeli military responded by targeting specific members of the leadership of the Islamic Jihad organization, command centers, rocket launchers, and they greatly reduced the, 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 uh, ca- the military um, capability of the organization. We had very minimal casualties. Unfortunately, there was a woman that was killed, an Israeli woman who was taking care of her husband. There was also a Gazan worker who was working in Israel, who was a father of, uh, I think, nine children, who, mm. who was killed by a missile that was launched from Gaza. And, and the, the amazing thing about Israel is that Israel decided that they are going to recognize that Gazan Palestinian laborer who was killed by that rocket fire in Israel, they're going to recognize him as a victim of Arab terror. Yeah. And that means that he is going to be compensated as, as if he was a Jew who was deliberately targeted. Amen. But at the meantime, you know, the, the, the situation was, was so incredible and so Kafkaesque, you know, when you think about just um, the, the, the missiles that were, you know, they were, they were the, the, um, the sirens went off in Jerusalem the sirens were going off in, in the area of Gush Etzion and Beit Shemesh, in many places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all and, and you have to understand also that it's this is all an Iranian proxy as well. Right. In fact, there was a report, an, ama- an amazing report on Channel 12 in Israel that Iran promised the Palestinian organization Islamic Jihad, Jihad $5 million for every day of conflict with Israel. Wow. So the whole scenario also has to be understood what's happening here, the long reach of Iran and why Israel is always trying to warn the West about Iranian influence and what's going on because Iran is in Lebanon, right on the border with Israel, and Iran is within the Palestinian enclave also in the land of Israel attempting to... to um, to take Israel apart from inside as well. Can you imagine Iran promising this terrorist organization $5 million a day just to keep the conflict going? Right. And, you know, the other thing that I think a, a lot of uh, the, the, the naysayers uh, either are not aware of or have forgotten is the fact that the, uh, the, the foundational documents, the, the charter of the Palestinian people, their, their sort of declaration of independence, if you will, uh, has has in its charter a call for the destruction of Israel, and a lot of people, a lot of people, by the way, have said, "Oh no!" In 1998, they they were asked to remove that, and they said they would. And guess what? They tabled it, so they've never officially removed the call 
to to destroy the people of that's the, a, Israel. That's a common denominator of all the different Palestinian groups. That, yeah. And the school the school books that the Palestinian children study from that are funded by the European Union are uh, published by the state of Palestine with the state of Palestine on the cover. There mm-hmm. is no Israel right. as far as their their uh, maps are concerned. And it's all predicated on the utter destruction of Israel, which brings up the, the most important thing to me in this discussion, which is that... You know, because of the portrayal of the whole situation in the in the media, the impression that a lot of people have is that there is what's called a cycle of violence. Mm. You know, there is there is um, a um, just an unfortunate situation wherein there is this the, the, these two sides that are locked in this struggle, and of course it's exacerbated very much. Uh, by statements that are made, let's say, by the EU and by the UN, and also also by America, yep. condemning the loss of life in Gaza, condemning the loss of life in, Ga- in Gaza. You know, you you in America have serious problems right now with the porous border, all the things that are going on at at the border that really take into uh, account um, that, that that really present, according at least to some people and some opinions, an existential threat to various aspects of American life, what's going on at the border, un- unchecked and unsupervised. But that's one thing. Yeah. And it could be that there, are, that there are nefarious elements involved. It could be that there are terrorists, and it could be that there are drug cartels and all sorts of people that are coming in. But that's one thing. But here we're talking about missiles raining down on a civilian population day after yeah. day. So, yeah. so uh, then you have this condemnation kind of of like this that, that makes it sound as if you know, either Israel is the aggressor, or at best that they're that they're both equally responsible. So you have statements like, "Well, the, you know, you have to tone down the response, and you have to and and, and you have to try and 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 um, and uh, you know decrease the decrease the the escalation and yeah. and this kind of thing, which is so ridiculous, you know. And I and I understand a lot of people who speak this way are sincere, and they really are good people who who are very frustrated by the loss of life and they're very concerned with what's going on. But the way that the whole thing is, is painted is not realistic and it's also, it's also rather um, insidious because let, let's say that someone is attacking you and your family, right? right. Let's say that you, there's an intruder, an intruder in your home who is coming to kill you and your family, right? And you stand up and defend yourself, right? And you strike that person as, uh, in return, Right, right. Would that be called violence? Would it be would it be relevant and proper and would it make any sense at all for an onlooker watching you defending yourself from a home intrusion, from a lethal attack? Would it be would it be reasonable for someone to say to you, stop the violence? You know, this is this violence has to stop. Yeah, yeah. And this is language, by the way, you never hear. You know, our our, our inner cities right now are are falling apart because of violence. Right, and people are beginning to defend themselves. So you're seeing, you're never hearing that in the narrative. You're never hearing people who who say, you know, uh, no one steps up and go, well, we've got to stop the cycle of violence. No, we just have to stop the violence and the attacks on innocent people. And what did I know that that uh, others have invoked this uh, uh, thing that Golda Meir said years ago. And we, you have to think of this every time you think of the casualties that the Palestinians incur on their own people. And, and uh, you may have to help me out here, but I think she says that we'll have, uh, we'll have peace with, with, the, with these people once they love their own children more than they hate us, I believe is what she said, or something right. Very something like that. that. I hope I would like to believe that that could happen, but it's yeah. hard to believe that it could happen because look at again. I know of at least 110 missiles that fell back down on the Palestinian population, but I think that that is actually just something that they're able to propagandize and manipulate into into more numbers of casualties that were that were incurred incurred uh, you know that were inflicted by Israel. But the, mm-hmm. again, the main thing is there is this I call it a woke god. Yeah. It's the woke god of moral equivalency, wherein the way that they have to look at it is that, you know, there is this cycle of violence. So, just, you know, besides the fact that, again, I ask you, what normal country, what reasonable country, uh, the, a government's duty is to protect its citizens, first and foremost. Right. That's what a government is really for, right? So who would to- tolerate constant attacks against its civilian population? 
which, which again, is this leads me to ask about the organizations like the UN and like the EU and also voices that came from the State Department also condemning the violence towards Gaza, n- not really addressing what's been, what's been going on in Israel and not really clearly condemning the attacks. And the, basically the, the Israeli population is... It's understood that they, I guess, don't don't have the basic rights to life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, on a, a on a prophetic level, uh, I can see. I think we can clearly see. Uh, I often think about Ezekiel thirty-eight and and the the idea of these armies surrounding, you know, Jerusalem at some time in the future. This very apocalyptic scenario and and you can see what's going on right now the, the the very thing that you're talking about will be the thing there will come a time in the future when Israel will have to defend itself in a very remarkable way in, in, in to 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 survive they they will they will I don't know if they will put their foot down and say enough or what will happen but the way that that all of these real enemies among the nations including our own sadly what will happen is they will use that as an excuse to send armies to Israel and say, you know, you've you've gone too far or whatever. And of course, the media, as always, will be complicit. They'll be calling for they'll be calling for Israeli lives. And and uh, I mean, I'm seeing it already in, in some of the leadership and it, you know that's that's talking in this way. And and. Uh, I just want to say, Jim, before before anything else, also like it's time to really publicly just acknowledge and recognize Hashem, and give Him thanks for what's going on here, and especially in this week, as we're we're going to discuss also the climax of this week is Jerusalem Day, which is going to be on uh, Friday, May May nineteenth, which is a day of tremendous Thanksgiving. But just looking at this scenario, what's been going on here? I mean, we had over a thousand missiles launched at Israel. There was, you know, some damage to property. There were, there was several, several instances of loss of life, but I mean, that's just because of God. Because it could have been hundreds. Yeah, it could have been hundreds of people. And that, that was the intention. And the idea is, again, so there, the the cities that are more in the direct line of fire were basically living in in terror with children in terror and living in bomb shelters. It's it's just an an amazing an amazing. A reality to consider when when people in America have far uh, less things to. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying you know, but I'm saying and I understand everyone has their problems and everyone has their issues. But I mean, can you imagine living like that? No, in, in your in your own country, and 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 the idea basically being that um, these are organizations that represent the Palestinian people who do not recognize Israel's right to exist, and yet. You know there are there are people again that are, that are I, I believe fine people that are motivated by a love of goodness who say you know the cycle of violence has to stop and let's pray for everybody but the point is that that the the, the enemies of Israel their prayer is that they will be able to destroy every last man woman and child of the Jewish people that's basically what we're up against there's no yeah. there's no way to whitewash that that's what this is all about. Yeah. And, and so that there is no room really for moral equivalency. I don't. We're you know. I'm sorry, but we're not. I'm not sorry, but we're. There's no way that you can call Israel an aggressor when it's just a struggle to survive. Yeah. And if it would not be for Hashem's hand upon us, then we would not be here. There is no explanation right. for the unbelievable stories, the miracles that you know, the missiles that hit a, a, a children's room when the children happen to not be in their beds, and all the stories that happen for every for unfortunately for every death, which is a, a world. You know, which mm-hmm. is a horrible, unspeakable loss. There are there are so many miracles, and this is basically what is seeing us through. I, and I hope that I hope that that uh, those in our audience can appreciate that that the fact that it's not only uh, you know it's sad that that you have to put up with that kind of uh, you know uh, threat, existential threat, literally. And yet, it's also it's also uh, evidence of the sheer miracle of of that much uh, armory coming into your you know yes, being lobbed at you. Tremendous divine providence. It's a wake up call. It's a call to the people of Israel to come back to Hashem completely. It is just a, a manifestation of the fact that Hashem is is guiding this this people. 
So now we have a, a, a ceasefire, right? You know what ceasefire means? <laughs> the classic <laughs> definition of ceasefire basically yeah. means that we cease yeah. and they continue firing. So even, first of all, until the very last minute, the ceasefire was brokered by Egypt and it went into effect on Saturday night. But even in the minutes, literally, you could you could see in the app, you know, the missile app, mm-hmm. in the minutes leading up to the ceasefire, it had been declared a few hours before that the ceasefire would enter into into uh, uh, yeah. you know would, that it would begin at, at say 10 p.m. Yeah. The minutes leading up to it, they were they were salvo after salvo after salvo. Basically, because their logic is like, let's just see, maybe we could still get to kill a few Jews. We yeah. promise that there'll be a ceasefire, and then after the ceasefire as well. Yeah. There were so there were several instances of of more firing and more retaliation, and yeah. and it's well known that the various Gazan terror groups in the past also have violated ceasefires. For example, most famously. In, uh, in the 2014 Gaza War, what became known as the Gaza War, there was a ceasefire had been declared, and then there was a, a soldier whose name was Hadar Golden, who was killed by Hamas, and his body was dragged into a tunnel. After the ceasefire was declared, and to this day, we, we are not able to have his body returned. Mm-hmm. So, th- so that is par for the course in terms of the, of the Palestinian ceasefires. Amen. Well, the... Um um, I had an errant thought, which has now escaped me. But that happens a lot at my age. Anyway, um, we're getting ready for, uh, we, we're beginning a new book uh, in the Torah, a new Parsha, Bimidbar, and it's often read during Shavuot. And um, do we do we want to talk about the, uh, the significance of that for all of us? Absolutely. Before we get to Shavuot, which is actually um, next week, this week, and yes, you're right, the portion of Bamidbar, of the Book of Numbers, the first portion that literally means in the desert, is always read concurrent to the festival of Shavuot, which is so apropos because the Torah was given in the middle of the desert at Mount Sinai, and there are so many lessons that we learn from that. But this week, I want, I want everyone to be aware of the um, serendipity of Jerusalem Day falling out this week, exactly one week before Shavuot, as if it's almost as if it's like a spiritual preparation for Shavuot. Yeah. This day, the 28th day of the month of Iyar, of course, commemorates the day 56 years ago when the IDF was victorious in, I say, liberating and unifying Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people, bringing it back under Jewish sovereignty for completely for the first time in so many years. And it was absolutely remarkable. That was also the liberation of the Temple Mount. And so really the beginning of the uh, era leading into the, beginning, the, into, the, into the building of the Third Temple really is what began on June 7, 1967, which was the 28th day of ER. So that day is a day of tremendous religious sentiment, really, because it's, it's a day of Thanksgiving and yeah. uh, marking the miracle of... Uh, of the return of Jerusalem, again, the whole concept of, of both the Day of Independence in the 1948 war, this declaration of the State of Israel, and the unification of Jerusalem, both of those events occurring in the month of Iyar is remarkable. Right. Because the month of Iyar called the month of Ziv, which means radiance in the Book of Kings, Kings 1, Chapter 6, is the time when King Solomon began the construction on the first temple. So it's kind of like this trajectory into the future that, that, that he kind of laid the foundations for the reestablishment of the third temple, for, uh, for the reestablishment of the Commonwealth of Israel after so many years. It's like it's, it's con- the end of it is connected to the beginning of it mm-hmm. because, he, because the process leading to the redemption, the building of the first temple, is, it went into kind of like a, a level of dormancy for so many years, and then it was picked up again in the same month of ER. In fact, there's a very, very beautiful idea about that, which is, is just so remarkable. You know, the, the Midrash talks about the destruction of the temple. It talks about how the temple was destroyed on a Saturday night. And as the enemy, the Romans, destroyed the temple, as they were burning the temple, the Kohanim were being killed as they were serving atop the altar. And the Levites were singing the daily song. Right. You know that there's a there's a part of the morning service to this day is the song that was sung by the Levites on the platform in the Holy Temple every day. There's a different s- psalm that is sung. 
And this, the psalm that was sung by the Levites at the time of the destruction of the temple was the one that begins, Hashem, God of vengeance, shine forth. I forgot what number it was exactly, which number psalm that is, you could look it up. And so there's a question that's asked, a famous question uh, on this account. It doesn't really make sense because it was a Saturday. It was a Shabbat. Uh, uh, the conclusion of Shabbat is when the temple actually was destroyed. So why were the Levites not singing the psalm that is associated with Shabbat, which is a song for the Sabbath day? So the conventional wisdom is like, you know, they were asking Hashem to take vengeance on his name and to, and to avenge the destruction of the temple, and that's why they were singing that song. Yeah. But the beautiful thing is now that we have our perspective in our generation of the, this generation of the, of the rebuilding, as it were, the song that the Levites were singing at the time of the destruction of the temple was the song for Wednesday. And June 7th, 1967 was a Wednesday. Wow. So in other words, instead of just looking at it that, oh, they were there, you know, they were upset and they were dying and they were asking Hashem to avenge the destruction of the temple, that's not it at all. It, this is such a special idea. They were actually having a prophetic vision. They were looking into the future and they were seeing that the continuation of the temple service is going to going to effect is going to continue. The next stage along the timeline of the rebuilding of the temple will also be a Wednesday. And that was this great and holy day of the 28th of ER, mm -hmm. the, the day that it was, I believe, 180 paratroopers of the IDF lost their lives in the fight for the old city and the Temple Mount. Wow. You know, the other, uh, it should be obvious to, to all of us that the other connection between the, the, the need for the temple and Shavuot is because it's it's because of the other names and the function of the temple is is these festivals the festival of reaping, the the festival of the the first fruits of Bikurim, uh, all these are harvest festivals and the the temple for it to be completely celebrated as 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 you're instructed in the Torah, you we have to have a temple we have to have a place to bring these first fruits. Uh, and present them before Hashem, the place where he said he would put his name. And so that's right. the direct connection to, to the temple. So there's two, there's two messages that I really want to share with our listeners especially and viewers, especially our non-Jewish audience, who loves Hashem and who loves Torah and who embraces Torah. I want, to, I want to direct myself to two particular points. The first is about Jerusalem Day, and then I want to move right into Shavuot, as you said, beginning with the names of the festival. But what, what do you think should be the, the um, participation of those who love Jerusalem all over the world on that day? Because for us here, like I say, it's a day of tremendous religious significance and thanksgiving to Hashem. You know that the, when we study the prophets, it's clear that the city of Jerusalem is not only the spiritual center of mankind, but it's also the hope of humanity. Yeah, yeah. And all of the verses that we're familiar with that indicate that it's the center of creation, and we know that the sages teach that it's the center of the Garden of Eden, and it's the only place chosen by Hashem to, to manifest his, his presence and to shine forth his existence throughout human history. All those concepts are embodied and expressed so beautifully by verses like the one that we find in, um, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 1, Awake, awake, Zion, Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. So Jerusalem is the only city in the world that's called holy in, in the Torah. And of course, in the vision of the future of the rectified world, of all of the nations recognizing the oneness of God and serving him together, you know, like in Isaiah chapter 2, with the whole vision of for out of Zion shall go forth Torah and the word of God from Jerusalem. And all of the nations making the pilgrimage to the temple shows us that the city of Jerusalem figures in the blueprint of the redemption of all humanity. Right. So I, th I think that, uh, besides, of course, everybody knows Psalms 122, you know, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be at peace. There's the answer right there, is that every person who feels this connection, who understands Hashem's zeal, as he puts it in Zechariah chapter 1, his zeal for Jerusalem, his jealousy for Jerusalem, 
and his and his um, warning against those that would come against it. It's a time for really you you know unifying around what Jerusalem represents and standing up for it because standing up for Jerusalem is standing up for the honor of Hashem yeah. in the world today. That's the whole. That's that's a direct a direct continuation of what we were discussing at first. You know, the, the, people are either standing up and realizing what's going on, or they're understanding that, and they're understanding that there is a a concentrated effort to to um, hide Hashem's presence in the world. Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, one of the things that points to us who don't uh, who don't live in Eretz Israel, but who embrace Torah and the the idea of of uh, you know you the, the nation returning to its to its first uh, task, which which was given to to you at Sinai, which is to be our priesthood. This this is what I, I think about, and you know we uh, I, I go ahead and, and uh, even though I'm I'm not a a convent I read the the book of Ruth during Shavuot, but it, we're, we're that's still... actually a very important custom yeah. that Israel also um, does. That the book of Ruth is read on Shavuot for, for several reasons. Yeah. One is because Ruth is the great grandmother of King David. Right. King David actually was born and passed away on Shavuot. Yes. So that's one aspect of the connection. What that means exactly is also very profound. The co- the mm-hmm. concept of David representing Hashem's sovereignty in the world, being associated with the festival of the giving of the Torah, because he was like the embodiment of what it means to observe Torah in this world as a, as a regular human being, and also and also the whole story of the Book of Ruth is a story of kindness. Yes. You know the kindness that she performed for her mother-in-law, and the kindness that that she performed for her for her husband even after his death, and that's really the 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 very definition of Torah's message for humanity. When we talk about the non-Jews embracing Torah, it's a Torah of kindness. That's real. It's really it's about establishing a world based on kindness. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, another component is uh, again. This idea of of uh, Shavuot being this uh, this festival of first fruits, the, the Bikurim, and in, I always look at that as, as a reminder that that uh, this nation that was born at Sinai of the giving of the Torah represents a first fruit of mankind of humanity, and in that uh, God's message that that has always been forthcoming through. The, the people who accepted it and lived those lives that Hashem wants all of us to live. Uh, he, he's in his, um, you know, I've always looked at, at uh, the temple as the, the answer, the, the remedy to the ills that, that mankind would create for itself in falling away from, from belief in Hashem. It, it's the antidote or the, the, it's the anti-tower of Bavel, because because what happens at Bavel is is humanity left to their own devices. They 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 basically uh, embody and worship all these wrong ideas about what their what what their mission is on this planet, and that's the reason that Avraham right there is in the same. We we first see Avraham Avinu in the story of the tower, because Avraham would represent the culmination. Of the the anti tower, and that is the temple. This is this is how you worship God. If you're going to build a place to worship God, it's not uh, this this edifice which is built on on uh, shifting ground because it, it was destroyed by an earthquake, by the way. Uh, well, uh, well, the, the the tower of Babel was actually based on ego, right? Exactly, because it was all about t- taking over the world and outshining God, and basically, and you know, kind of like shirking responsibility and mm-hmm. declaring that we can be God ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, e- ego, ego is the, is literally the the breaking of the commandment against idolatry because you idol right. you idolize exactly. and you you uh, uh, you put your own thoughts on a pedestal above Hashem, and that's even in the Shevan that that's even the Sheva Mitzvot is against idolatry. So we we share that that uh, commandment 
so to speak, the idea of that commandment, ours in the seven laws were were commanded not to to uh, commit uh, idolatry, and that's that's isn't that the first law in the Torah? Is against idolatry. Sure. You shall have no other gods before me. So I don't see how we can escape the idea that we can access this celebration with you in in uh, enthroning Hashem before us, not our egos, not our man-made ideas, and. Uh, I'm gonna. I gotta. So there's, gotta, a, there's a few aspects here that, that we want to bring all together uh, as far as Shavuot is concerned. First of all, you you, you mentioned you know the first fruits. Uh, the connection between Shavuot and the Holy Temple is is amazing to consider. First of all, the, in the Torah itself, the festival of Shavuot, which again just to remind everyone begins um, next week on the night of May 25th. Yeah. It's going to be. Um, it's going to be Friday, Friday and Shabbat in the diaspora, and just, and just Friday in the land of Israel, and it, it has a number of names. First of all, it's called the Harvest Festival. We find that in Exodus twenty-three. It's called also there in Exodus thirty-four. It's called Chag Hashavuot, which literally means the festival of weeks because of the the seven perfect weeks that we're counting, the forty-nine days plus one from the second day of Passover to the time of the giving of the Torah. So those are the, the complete weeks, the counting of the Omer. It's also called, for example, in numbers, it's called the day of the first fruit. So when we talk about the first fruit, there are actually two distinct ideas. One idea is the very unique offering that was brought in the Holy Temple on Shavuot, which is two loaves of wheat bread that accompanies the other offerings for the community in the Holy Temple on Shavuot. This is very, very unusual, these two loaves of bread that are described in Leviticus 23, because it's the only occasion all throughout the year in the Holy Temple when anything is brought that contains chametz. Yeah. And this is actually an amazing idea, because, you know, we're really into the idea of not having chametz from Passover still. We understand what leaven represents, and that's the whole trip with matzah, because because the matzah is flat, and even, even the, the bread of the showbread that sat on the table was not leavened. Mm-hmm. So there's a particular commandment in Torah not to bring anything of leaven to the, to the Beit HaMikdash, to the Holy Temple, because of what it represents, because it represents ego right. and an inflated heart and you know, an, a haughtiness, and because we have to have a, a proper uh, realistic view of ourselves when we come to serve Hashem, we have to have a uh, we have to have our ego in check. So there is no leaven, but the exception is these two breads that are made of wheat that are leaven that are brought on Shavuot, and the, the symbolism is is remarkable because remember that the Omer that was that is a measure of barley that was cut and brought as a wave offering at the conclusion of the first day of Passover that began this whole spiritual process that we're working on all throughout these days of the counting of the Omer, of, of um, you know, shedding layers of, of skin of our, of our attributes and working on realigning ourselves with Hashem and, and uh, preparing ourselves spiritually to be able to receive the Torah because when we left Egypt, we were still in this constricted consciousness and the slave mentality, you know. And that's what the barley offering that's brought at the beginning of the Omer, it represents because our sages mm-hmm. call it like animal fodder, because raw barley can't be digested by a person. And that represents like the, the constricted consciousness, the immature kind of uh, mindset of the Israelites at the beginning of the process. And then as we go through these seven weeks, preparing to stand at, at Mount Sinai to receive the Torah and thus to receive freedom, because the, the true freedom is to be able to serve Hashem. So then finally it's kind of like we evolve into real human beings that can be servants of Hashem, that are no longer servants of Pharaoh, of our own personal Pharaoh. And then there's no danger of the, of the, of the arrogance that Levin represents. And that's because when, that's the day that we receive Torah. And so we're standing upright, like that's the image of a human being, a, a servant of Hashem. And that's all conveyed, that, that message is all conveyed by this concept of the twin loaves of wheat bread that are brought. The other aspect of the first fruits, of course, uh, that we that for which the festival of Shavuot is also called the day of the first fruits, is because of the seven species for which the land of Israel is praised. Yeah. That we find in Deuteronomy eight verse eight, wheat, barley, grape, fig, pomegranates, olive olive oil, the oil of olives, and the honey of dates. These are the fruits from which the first fruits of the land are brought. 
And so we read, for example, in, in Deuteronomy 26, the main commandment in Parshat Kitavo that begins the chapter, chapter 26 of Deuteronomy is that the, the farmer in the land of Israel, when his fruit begins to ripen, he ties a band around the first fruit that ripens, and he literally declares orally, these are the first fruits, and he brings them up to the Holy Temple. The beginning of the season of the first fruits is Shavuot. Right. And so it, it actually extends all the way through until Sukkot. There are different fruits that ripen at, ripen at different times, but this is actually it's a very, very beautiful description in the Mishnah that talks about the whole concept of, you know, the, the whole nation going up to the temple carrying the first fruits and, and the ceremony that we read about in Deuteronomy 26 of this confession before the Kohen and this whole uh, recital of the, of the history of the, of the people of Israel until that point and basically acknowledging and thanking Hashem for all the miracles in our lives that are reflected through these fruits that we're bringing because the farmer worked so hard raising his crop and... Finally, 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 the fruit are ready. And you would think that at that moment, when he finally sees that something on his, on his vine, on his tree has, has um, totally, is now totally prepared for consumption, you would think like, he would be so overwhelmed with joy and so completely focused on his own, again, ego, that he would just grab the fruit and devour it on the spot. And instead, he actually ties a band, a ribbon around that very fruit and he says, no, this is for Hashem. Mm -hmm. And he waits. And he closes the circle and he brings it back to Hashem and he, and he realizes that everything that I have is only from you. So all that takes place in the temple on Shavuot. So this is a, is a very amazing idea, this, this uh, duality of the festival, because nowadays we don't have the Holy Temple, unfortunately, at this point, and so we don't have a way of expressing uh, the bringing of our first fruits to Hashem to the Temple, although each one of us in our own way, we have the first fruits of our labors, obviously. Right. But the amazing thing to consider is that how do we really observe Shavuot today? So we have a custom which is very beautiful and very, very widespread uh, amongst all, you know, all of the nation of Israel is that the night before Shavuot, we stay up the whole night studying Torah. And it's a, an intense experience, you know, and of course exhausting. And then we, we, we come to the morning prayers at the crack of dawn, which is anyway the most beautiful time to pray the morning service. And it's like we're receiving the Torah anew at, at that moment, because after all, that's what we believe, that, this, that, that the time element in Torah is not once upon a time this and this happened, we're commemorating it today, but we're actually reliving, and it's actually happening for us now. And the preparation, as it were, is staying up that night and, and studying. That custom is not so ancient. It's ancient, you know, on the timeline in, in terms of it being first mentioned, let's say, in, in the Zohar, let's say, in the 13th century. Mm -hmm. It's an ancient custom, but it wasn't in effect in the time of the Holy Temple. And, of course, the, the, the backstory of this beautiful custom of honoring the Torah in such a, such a magnificent way of, of not allowing ourselves to fall asleep the night before it comes from the, it's based on the Midrash that many people are familiar with, that for whatever reason, I don't know what the reason is, and it's embarrassing for, for me to recall, but the fact is, according to the Midrash, the Jewish people overslept the, the yep. morning of Shavuot, and Hashem had to come and wake them up and say, hello, I was planning on giving you the Torah this morning. So whatever that means, obviously it sounds rather whimsical as an anecdote, you know, but there are deep lessons so somehow to kind of, to kind of um, rectify that, you know, we, we stay up the night before showing Hashem that we're, that we're very zealous and we don't want Him to have to wake us up. We, we want to be able to, remit, to be there on our own. So that, that's this concept of showing our enthusiasm for receiving the Torah. But in the time, so that, that's its own story, whatever that is all about. But in the time of the Holy Temple, the way Shavuot, which is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, with the thunder and the lightning and the tremendous experience of, the, of astral projection and the, the, the unparalleled level of, of holiness and, and clairvoyance and prophecy that the people reached, you know, when the heavens opened up and they perceived that there's only Hashem and they actually saw the, thound, the sound of the thunder and the lightning, right? That's how the verse describes right. it. <laughs> And that incredibly spiritual experience of receiving Torah, how was that celebrated in the Holy Temple? By bringing the first fruits. Yeah. 
So it seems, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the surface, ostensibly, it seems like it seems like a, a very contradictory kind of duality. Because, okay, I can understand our our um, devotion and reverence for Torah and our wanting to honor Hashem. So the night before, we stay up as as best we can and show our great zeal and love of Torah, and, and we and we want to make a statement through our lives that we want to become vessels really to hold the light of the Torah. So that's a very beautiful idea. Whether a person can or can't, can't right? But, but my question is, how is it that in the time of the Holy Temple, the celebration was totally agricultural and not, I mean, because one would say, but that's not spiritual, that's like earthy. It's mm-hmm. like the opposite. It's like the farmer's hands are caked with mud. He takes the fruit he brings them up to the temple, mm-hmm. and that's how you celebrate the day that Torah was given by a celebration of the earth, as it were. I th- I think it's so, a very appropriate celebration because uh, it it takes us all the way back to Gan Eden and the original purpose of humanity, because humanity was supposed to be a kind of priesthood originally, right? And and Adam and Eve were supposed to be the beginning of this. And what is what does Hashem say? When, when they are ejected from the garden, he says, now you'll have to, to, to provide bread. You'll have to work by the sweat of your brow. To work the land. To work, right. work the land. And, and we, in a way, because, because we often default to the negative because it's, 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 uh, it comes with being a human being in a physical realm. But Hashem takes away that curse with the giving of the Torah because Hashem says, no, this is to remind you, this idea of working the land and, and providing these first fruits, the, the idea is that your joy will come from being, this is the way I think many of us see it, is this, your joy comes from seeing the fulfillment of being co-creators. God says, I'm not just going to, you know, you wouldn't be happy if I just handed you all these blessings. In a kind of utopia, I think people have a wrong idea of utopia, because God to be Hashem says, "I I want you to be holy because I am holy." One of the things that makes Hashem what Hashem is, if we're if we're in His image, then we also experience it in in a very physical way. We we experience what it is to be a creator by by working the earth, by planting the seeds. And then, and then we wait. The only waiting we do is is that we wait for God to water it, to to bring it forth. And so, in essence, He's given us some wonderful things to do, in in being taking part in this. Talk about a cycle. This is the cycle of creation, that that sustains the the planet, and and we're we're a part of it. We're the only th- we're the only living creature on the planet that get that. Uh, we, we understand that it's a blessing. We understand that it's a, a fulfillment of, of who we are and what God made us. And, and that's why I think the idea of it being a festival of first fruits is so remarkable because, because um, dis, despite the fact that we're the last thing created, we, are a, we represent... Uh, the fulfillment of everything that the earth was created for was humanity. Everything that you're saying is so perfect, Jim, so spot on, and I think that even more so that the, the what this shows us is that this is Torah. In mm. other words, the first fruits is so holy, even though it's basically a, a very natural thing. It's you wouldn't see anything miraculous there about something growing from the ground, even mm. though it, it certainly is. But the idea is. Again, as we say many times, everything about Torah is a celebration of life, a celebration of this world. God did not keep the Torah in heaven with the angels, right? He gave it to people to live as best as they could be, as, as best human beings as they could be. And everything about Torah observance in this world elevates every aspect of life. And so that's what the farmer does when he holds back his own ego and he takes this fruit and he says, I, I couldn't have done this. This I have nothing to do with this even. I, I didn't do this. I don't know how this happened. And he brings it to Hashem and he thanks him for all the blessing in his life. 
That's what Torah is. In other words, it's like that, that verse that truth sprouts forth from the from the land. From the, earth, yeah. the idea is that the, the you know it's studying Torah is very beautiful and making it a part of our life is very beautiful and that's the purpose. But it's not just a book of commandments. It's not just rules. It's not just you know a a, a, a code of behavior. It's the very stuff of life. It's it's literally the the expression of humanity living in this earth. So mm-hmm. the celebration of of Torah in the Holy Temple, which, as you mentioned, is the place where it all comes together, right? The beacon that that basically shines forth, like those verses I was quoting earlier in relation to to Jerusalem Day from Isaiah, that from Zion shall go forth Torah and the Word of God from Jerusalem. So the the celebration of the giving of the Torah in the Holy Temple is an expression of Hashem being found in this world. Yeah, and that's the that's the whole beauty, the whole purpose of Torah is to celebrate this world, to is to live in this world. According to Torah, and not you know again as we always mention, we're not we're not aesthetic, we're not removed from the world, we're in in the world, and Hashem's blessing in the physical world, as represented by the first fruits of the land of Israel, is literally the living Torah of this earth. So there's no not only there's no contradiction, but I don't even see it as a dichotomy. In other words, it's it's literally living the Torah that we study and that we want to make part of our response system and part of our personality and. It's that is literally what the first fruits are, are all about. Yeah. So it's it's actually so beautiful. These twin aspects that are, and all of these aspects of of the day are reflected in the various names of the festival. Yeah, and the other the other connection that we see with the Torah parsha this week, which is all about the census, because the census, in one respect, is the way that Hashem reminded Israel that that uh, you, you know. Uh, 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 flipping the coin over, God says, "You're not just a number to me. You're you're my creation. You're you you uh, uh, you, you you count. That's what it really means. Is you count is right. that is that it it represents Israel coming to to the temple in this festival. They put away all their differences and and just like the 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 counting, he says that." Israel is the strongest when they are this group of unique individuals who are united in the common goal. And, and you know, you mentioned you, you first began this segment of our discussion by asking, you know, we're talking about something that, you know, that is, is based uh, around what's going on with the earth. Well, it, again, it's, it's, it's like this aspect of, of uh, the, counting the numbers of, of the people in the tribes is that God is reminding us that, it, that you know, we came from the earth. We came from the simple lump of clay, and and it reminds us what our Creator has, has that we are that we are the result of what the power of of the Creator in taking a, a mound of clay and forming it into this thing called a human being. You know, and mm-hmm. it's 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 profoundly humbling on one side, but on the other, it's like. You know, look! Look what Hashem can do. It, it's it's a reminder, and it reminds us how we're all it, we're all connected in in again, the, uh, not a cycle of violence, but a cycle of giving, of constant giving, between the earth and humanity and Hashem. And the month is really a cycle. I called it a trajectory, but you know, going from the Rosh Chodesh of ER going through that going to the to Independence Day and now this week to Jerusalem Day which by the way Jerusalem Day the 28th of ER is also the anniversary of the passing of Samuel the prophet yes yes which is very very amazing uh, because Samuel the prophet anointed the first kings of Israel both king Saul and king David and although Jerusalem had not yet been established as David's capital in the lifetime of Samuel, but his whole life's work was towards the establishment of the monarchy and also towards the establishment of the temple. It was, it was Samuel the prophet that gave over to King David all of the specifics for the preparation of the temple, the whole concept of the blueprints of the temple, mm-hmm. the night that King David was fleeing from Saul and they went to Naot in Ramah, there's a whole concept that our sages discuss about the fact that Samuel was teaching David everything about the future temple, and it was David's goal to establish the temple. It was to be built by his son, by Solomon, but David really set up the infrastructure for the temple. So, so Samuel's stamp, as it were, is also on 
Jerusalem, and he spent most of his life traveling back and forth between Ramah and Jerusalem. And so it all comes together in the most beautiful way. And then continuing from Jerusalem Day, which again, I strongly suggest should be a day that's really observed by all the people who, lo- who love Jerusalem and pray for her peace, because it's a day of tremendous spiritual inspiration. It's a day of thanksgiving. It should be really a day of identifying with the beauty, the holiness of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And then moving to Shavuot, here, here again, you know, again, the, the whole concept of what Torah really is all about, you know, that it really is a celebration of life. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the uh, both the birthday and the day of the passing of King David is on Shavuot, because he really represents sovereignty, Hashem's sovereignty, he is the forerunner of Mashiach, and he was, and he was a human being. And the more that you study about King David, the more you appreciate his, his multifaceted personality consisted of all sorts of ups and downs. And the greatest gift that he left us with is the book of Psalms, which is like holding his heart in our hands, you know, because he had been through so much. He expresses all of the travail and all of the joy and all of the anguish of the human condition. And he was a person. And, the, and the, the most important thing about King David is that he teaches us what it really means to repent and what it really means to be clinging to Hashem because all the things that he had been through, the incredible anguish, the suffering with his own son, with Avshalom, and with all of that, that he's being pursued by King Saul and his whole life story that we've been studying about now for two years in our, in our Sunday Zoom classes, at every point in time, he was always clinging to Hashem, clinging to Hashem, trusting only in Hashem when he stood against Goliath, when he, when he was fleeing from Saul. Now, every situation that he was in, he teaches us what it really means to, ha- to believe and to have faith in Hashem at all times. Yeah. And that's the goal, really, of, of Torah, that we're that we're celebrating, receiving it on Shavuot. Yeah. You know, one of, there's this, I read across this fascinating midrash, uh, and one of the sages said that the, the, uh, the connection, one of the other connections, you know, all this, you know, we're talking about bread and, and you know, the, the, the two loaves in, in, the, in, in the temple, in the sanctuary. And one of the, uh, one of the sages said that um, uh, Sinai was created by, by uh, and this is all very heavily symbolic, Sinai was created because it was like a portion of Mount Moriah was removed and placed in the wilderness to create Har Sinai. And he said it likened it to, I love this, it likened it to the portion of Chala that's torn right. away and set aside for the Kohenim. But I have to tell you something else. This is uh, fascinating. Um, I'm involved with a project right now to find the real Sinai. And I, this is a little foretaste, and this is all I can say about this right now, but this particular Mountain, and it's not the popular one, but the mountain that this this project that I'm involved with is looking at, it is in Saudi Arabia, and what's amazing is is that um, the sages tell us that, you know, the idea I'm, I'm I'm hearkening to the same idea about this portion of Moriah, the 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 Sinai that sh- the the sages tell us that it looks like a a, a mountain with a peak. Another peak on top of it. Mm-hmm. So the the, other, the 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 chunk, the peak that sits on top of this mountain, would sort of represent the idea of this this piece of hala from Moriah put on top, and it literally looks like a mountain with with an added peak to it, which I think is is quite remarkable. Little that digression. Is, that is an, absolutely, it's, a, it's an amazing insight into that very obscure and elusive midrash. But more importantly, for me, you kind of gave us a big tease here. So, are you going to tell us anything more about your opinion about the the location of Mount Sinai, or do we have to literally wait for the movie? No, you can. You can actually. The, the the gentleman I'm working with on this has written a book about it called Searching for Sinai. He's the friend I often invoke. His name Alexander Hool. And uh, the mountain is uh, a mountain which sounds very much like the um, alternate name for Sinai, which is um, Horeb. And, and this mountain in Saudi Arabia is called uh, uh, Ha'ab. I can't say it in, in, in Arabic properly. Anyway, it sounds like Horeb. 
uh, it, it's, it's Jebel Harb. And and uh, if you if you slice up the syllables and the vowels, it sound you mm-hmm. can make have uh, horror out of it. So it's near the other inf- famous one that has been called that for all the wrong reasons. But um, if you want to read his opinion, which I think he makes an amazing case for it, it's called Searching for Sinai, uh, Alexander Hool, H O O L. Okay, Jim, I want to mention, you know. There's a famous midrash, I know you're aware of it, about uh, when God was ready to give the Torah, that he first turned to all the nations of the world. And he offered it to them. And he offered it to them, yeah. right? And he, and, and he offered it to each nation. And to each nation, he, they, well, they say, well, what's in it? And so to each one, he, he said something that he knew was a difficult thing for them. Like to this group, he said, well, you can't do this. And to this group, he said, you can't do that. Knowing full well that each nation had a certain propensity for maybe for that kind of excess. Mm-hmm. So he was testing them, and they all said, no thanks. And then when he came to Israel, like everybody knows, Israel kind of sight unseen said, uh, yeah, we'll do it. And not and all of that. But the famous expression is, na which means we will do mm-hmm. and we will obey, which means that even if we don't understand... We accept upon ourselves the responsibility, and even if there are things that we don't understand, we will do it because you commanded it, which is a, a very beautiful idea. But in any event, uh, be that as it may, that that rather um, exclusivity, exclusive kind of um, uh, portrayal of the giving of the Torah, we also know from companion midrashim that there were there there were others from amongst the nations that with that were with the people of Israel when the Torah right. was received. And I want to I want to turn specifically to our our audience, our family, our wide community of Jerusalem Lights, and I and this is a, such an important time, and such an auspicious moment to to relate to this idea because we are witness today to the phenomena of so many non-Jews that literally are courageous in their stand for standing up for Hashem as one God that literally have left idolatry behind and that literally embrace Torah and cherish it. And so I, I, I really believe that this is a, first of all, it's a tikkun. It's a rectification for, for those that did not receive it at Sinai. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I think it is a very beautiful historical process of these souls taking a lead towards the redemption of all humanity. And so whatever, whatever you know, lessons we understand from what happened at the sign of Revelation, we also understand that there is a process that's going on of Hashem calling out the souls from a certain kind of spiritual exile and bringing them to Torah. And that's what we are seeing today. And that's the whole idea of Jerusalem Lights and Torah for Everyone is addressing the, the special quality of those people that are embracing Hashem and Torah now. And it isn't too late. It is a tikkun. For, 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 for the sign of revelation, as it were, for saying no. Now there are so many people that literally at great personal cost are showing tremendous dedication and commitment to Hashem. Yeah. And so this is, this is a, a, just a, a great appreciation to all the people that are coming to Torah and Hashem with humility and reverence and saying to Hashem, please teach us the Torah. And so, and so, Shavuot is for them as well. Is what I, is my main, my main point is that Shavuot is not something that is only for Israel. It's for all the people who cherished Torah and who celebrate the fact that Hashem gave it to Israel, as you say, as priests, as ministers to the whole world, to give over to humanity its message, which is again as exemplified by the Book of Ruth that we are accustomed accustomed to read on 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 Shavuot. It's the Torah of kindness and the most unbelievable thing of all of the whole situation is that Ruth is a Moabite convert right. and she's the great-grandmother of Mashiach. So you see how one person can make such a tremendous difference. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's, uh, uh, again, I, 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 we, uh, we should embrace this idea of the first fruits. And, the, the, you know, when uh, Moses is at Sinai before the giving of the Torah, before he's even gone back to Egypt, you know, God reminds him, he says, you know, you go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. And as a former uh, follower of, of a, a completely different belief system, I rejected that. 
<laughs> excuse me, and I had to, I had to, to, uh, I had to accept the idea that that I was not, you know, the. Um, uh, I had to accept the idea that there were people that God chose out and 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 to become His nation, with the exact purpose of of uh, being our teachers, being a priesthood to the planet, and I think that we should we should uh, we should recognize that we need a teacher. We I'm I'm 74 years old and I've I still need to be taught. I still need to learn, and I learned from you, and I I learned from from the Torah constantly. We need to we need to submit to the idea that that the 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 reason for the, the chosen people doesn't it's not because God says you're special. He says, I've created you to be separate because you have a task. And you know, even the Rambam says it's incumbent upon all of Israel to teach the nations the seven laws. So I think that uh, you know we need to um, you know, when when missiles are raining down on on Eretz Israel, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because that is, you know, that is our salvation, is that land and its people. Because without Israel, without its priesthood, without an eventual temple, the planet will self destruct. And we need to remember that, and we need to to know that uh, that like you know, uh, Zechariah eight says. We need to look for that time when 10 men from every nation comes and grabs the seat seat of a Jew and say, take us with you, because we've heard that God is with you. you the, the Jewish people have an enormous job, and that is that um, they are our elder brother, and they are our brother's keeper, and, and, and we need to recognize the role of Israel uh, for humanity and, and not reject them and and. We need to think about you when you guys are hunkering down in your uh, bunkers. That if if Israel is goes, the whole world goes. Um, and Hope will be around for a while. I think you will be. And, uh, I think you will be. So I just want to express to you now, Jim, on the eve of uh, the great festival of Shavuot, Jerusalem Day, um, my great. Love and respect for you and Thank your you. walk and your tremendous commitment to Hashem. It's an, such an amazing story, your story, and it's shared. It's a story that's shared by so many people. Yeah. And that's what Jerusalem Lights is all about. And I, I want to call out to all of our dear listeners and viewers and express my, from my heart that all those that join with Israel and that sincerely love Hashem and His Torah are active partners with Israel in the process of the redemption of all humanity. So that's what everyone that loves Hashem and His Torah is accomplishing, and we are progressing towards the time when everyone will understand that the whole purpose of creation is to know Hashem and to be able to express thankfulness, which is what Shavuot is all about, is expressed through the first fruits, and all of us in our own way, and all of our viewers and listeners also who are not Jews. Everything that we do also is a reflection of the first fruits of our labor. And bringing every, all of our talent and all of our accomplishment back to Hashem and saying it's all yours. That's one of the major, lessons, the major lessons of Shavuot as well. So I wish you and all of our listeners and viewers a beautiful festival of Shavuot. And may we hear good news. And may we all merit to receive on a true soul level to receive Torah anew this year and every day.